Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. All right, welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm really excited today to be chatting with Revathi Kolegala, who is the Executive Director of Region Foundation and a friend. And yeah, we have such amazing conversations on a weekly basis about all of the things that are happening. And I'm just, I'm really excited to get to just share those sort of the texture of those conversations with the broader community. I'm also really excited to get a little bit more, um, you know, I, I don't, I haven't really gotten a deep dive into your story. And so I'm also excited to get a, a little bit of a sense around how your life has shaped you and the deeper why and approach that you've been championing at, at Region Foundation and the rest of your work out in the world. So um, so uh, welcome, and I'm really grateful to have you here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, I, I feel like we always have these very insightful conversations whenever we talk, so uh, I'm really happy that some of this is also going to be available to others and we can have this in a larger context and super happy to make it more broader and just dive deeper into getting to know each other. So Rave, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and maybe how that's informed your thinking and your work in the world. Sure. My name is Revati and as is very obvious from the name, I'm from, I was born and brought up here in India. I come from a city called Mysore, which is a hotbed of yoga and has a version of yoga named to it. People here don't call it Mysore yoga or Ashtanga yoga, but it's called that way outside of India and outside of the city. Um, But that just means it's a very cultural city and a lot of spirituality is kind of deeply embedded here. Um, It's kind of very natural to even a small kid who's three years or four years old, you'll find them being aware of the mind-body connection and how that relates to the planet, that each of us is interconnected with one another and with their bodies. And the external realities reflect our internal realities. And there's this constant process of of work we do internally. Uh, And I think uh, what I'm excited about in terms of region network and where Region Foundation fits into the ecosystem is this idea of bringing in that level of connectedness and looking at the ledger as the very tangible physical thread that connects uh, people in the ecosystem and, and tries to reflect the planet, which is the other very obvious tangible thing that connects us all. Yeah, uh, that's that's a good starting point. Um, I'm also from India, so I'm very aware of the developing world context. I have been, I studied in the U.S. for grad school and was in the tech sector, mostly on data strategy for almost a decade. I was in roles that was specifically focused on strategy for bigger um, sort of data science tools used by uh, across sectors and by millions of people. And I had a front seat on how data in some ways equals power. And so I think that's the other aspect that I'm very keen to bring about here. Uh, Tech systems and data specifically does carry a lot of information and power. And at the same time, 
it, it's very reductionist in nature. There is a lot of human relationships that go into anything that we put in terms of data. And as we go into the next phase of climate action and our own as a society, our relationship with planet, um, all of this is going to sort of reflect in carbon credits and and what we need is a more holistic way of approaching how we represent our actions, our relationship with planet in terms of data. And I'm excited about all the work um, as part of region network ecosystem that we are doing in bringing about a more holistic and ethical version of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So data is power. And what was your experience in, in working in the tech industry previous to region network in related to how companies and um, product teams were managing the ethical implications of data equaling power? Um, uh, (laughs) It's a, it's a good question. I mean, this was back several years ago. Nowadays, I mean, people are more aware and you talk about, Google and Facebook and uh, the need for data sovereignty and ownership is more mainstream. But back then it really was not. And all of this would happen behind closed doors. So it, it was very aware how you had these really big conglomerate companies that were built mainly because of the power of data. Um, and it, it did not have to be something overt like Google, but for instance, companies in the defense sector or in education that really were built on the power of data. And mainly the folks who were providing these data were not aware of it, that this was what made them powerful and made them hugely commercially successful that they were. And so there's this huge imbalance between those who enable that power and where that power actually goes and the money and economic flows behind it. Um, uh, My... In some of my work sort of after, I am also a technology advisor for um, Seva Cooperative Federation, which is one of the largest women's cooperative federations in the world. Um, The larger movement has several hundred thousands of women members, mostly in informal economy. And there, um, there are experiments specifically on the role of data in terms of empowerment and and I think that is really important to speak about here. Like there is a contrast between what has been happening and what we can do and what we can be doing is look at data as a team sport. Um, it's useful when a bunch of folks sort of share it with each other and it has and its power grows and collectively people owning data together it is impactful and powerful and also commercially valuable. Um, in the context of the work that, for instance, we have in refi spaces and in the region network ecosystem, I think it's immensely powerful to imagine a network of people-owned collectives who contribute to their understanding of where the planet is at the moment, what the needs are, and the activities that can be done to for regeneration on a planetary level at the scale that they are aware of at a local scale. But then bringing them all together um, on the ledger gives it a wholly different meaning in the context of the global scale and of the planet. And, uh, And the ledger is a very tangible way in which those rewards can be shared amongst all. In some ways, it's sort of like a 
cooperatives, of traditional cooperatives, I feel. So I am excited about some of these possibilities in this context and also aware of, at the moment, um, that not being the case in terms of me, uh, what what is the mainstream handling of data where we don't actually own the data and it's and that power of being able to produce impact on a planetary level is not obvious yet because that data is not available it's not openly shared and everybody does not reap the benefits of it yeah maybe it would be useful i know in in addition to the work that you've done with seva you've also been pretty active over the last couple of years with the peer to peer foundation and thinking about common commons commenting and you know maybe i, I think what you're inviting us to consider is what the data commons look look like um so you know i i'd love to just get your take on the right relationship between commons and markets and how you see that really playing out in practice, you know, on the ground related to this, this really quite challenging last, you know, sort of like last mile question, you know, and I think maybe we start, maybe we could start moving the conversation towards what does it actually look like to be engaging with, you know, small, smallholder land stewards who maybe, uh, you know, are in parts of the world in which the, the digital connectivity and, is quite low or, you know, and maybe digital literacy is lower and access to tools is lower. And yet, you know, from the region network perspective, of course, these are some of the most important and valued stakeholders because of the enormous power, you know, and this is kind of like circling back to the beginning of the conversation, the data that those land stewards provide, the the changes in land stewardship practice, is perhaps one of the most powerful leverage points for changing the, the biosphere and and society to realign it with ecological health. So what? How do we stretch this gap? You know, in in practice, and I know it's it's sort of like it's evolving. It's quite hard. And what is the role of this concept of commoning and commons? And where does that relate to or not? to sort of market mechanisms. That's the, like the bundle or the, the direction I'm thinking will it'll be really juicy to, to go in. Sure. I think um, maybe something to start with is, is sort of thinking through what it looks like. It might look like in practice and sort of tangible last mile scenario. Not in all cultures, but in a lot of cultures, the stewards on the ground, the farmers, depending on subsistence agriculture practices, are part of close-knit communities. And uh, uh, especially in Indian context, in the South Asian context, this is also true in some parts of Africa and so on, you have these um, affinity groups of women in these cultural contexts who just meet together together. it started as just, you know, a bunch of neighbors meeting together, but it's grown into an industry where that is their access to formal financial services. Otherwise, they would not be credit worthy enough. And this includes loans for um, the work that they do in terms of agriculture and so on. They're called by different names. Some of them are self-help groups and uh, they are accreted to form cooperatives and other such uh, formal entities too. 
Um, but they have a regular practice of sharing what they're doing, the needs that they see, and especially sharing with others on solutions that has worked well for them that others can, you know, uh, that might be beneficial to other groups. And you'll, you'll also see this happening informally in terms of climate adaptation and regenerative practices amongst them. Um, as climate changes, maybe rainfall is too much in some places or too low, and they see um, their practices needing to change and they uh, talk about and share practices that's worked well for them. They share recommendations on loans and people who provide loans or other financial facilities that has worked well. And I think in this context, for this huge part of the population of the world, it's going to be very, very important to have that initial seed capital as well as information to move to something that's directly related to planetary regeneration. And that's going to come from these community spaces. And I think it's very easy to sort of tap into these existing social structures where you have um, people meeting every week and then that information going into a board meeting every, every month or so where they look at hey, how do we provide the next loan to our members? But also thinking about, hey, um, how do we adopt this regenerative practice that a member suggests and can we get financing for it? And what does it mean to have that as an eco-credit class on the ledger? And uh, here is this new proposal for a similar class by somebody else. And is that also contextual for us, helpful for us, and what do we think about it? Um, there's usually in a group of 20 or so uh, folks who might admittedly be in a very low literacy uh, kind of range, uh, and this is not even digital literacy, it might actually be literacy. There's usually one person who's the account keeper and the note keeper who has a relatively high level of literacy that the others sort of trust and look up to. Um, and development organizations have made a practice of also uh, finding these leaders who can be that point person for literacy. So I would imagine these people also growing into a point person for digital literacy, for ledger literacy, on bringing some of these decisions that um, a group of women in rural Maharashtra and in India might make onto the rural ledger, while um, another point person does the same thing on what the indigenous community in Colombia decides during their weekly meetings under the big tree in the town square or whatever. Mm. And I think uh, the understanding would be to develop this network of folks who have a bigger level of digital and Web3 literacy who are able to translate these messages onto the lecture and make that bi-directional, share ledger updates, get community inputs on it. Um, and, and essentially, very the, the ledger ecosystem is a community of such uh, digital ambassadors, intermediaries, whatever we want to call them. And there is this, like on a smaller level, there are versions of this that already exist and are successful in the market. Um, there are in nonprofits in India, you have these women called digital sakis who are digital friends is what it translates to. And they are the point person for a lot of ag tech 
services for loans and so on. And this is sort of like a gig economy model where they also get part of the, the value exchange that flows through this. And I can easily see this sort of translating on to the refi space and the regenerative economy, which would really make sure that um, there is incentive for everyone involved. In thinking of, you know, the structure in terms of commons, commons is uh, the theoretical definition would be a shared resource that can be sustained and self-governed. In some ways, what we are building is the ledger as a data commons. And I would see all of these digital point people being essential communication touch points for the idea of this commons and being able to translate the market pressures and demands at the current moment to the members of the commons who are the eventual land stewards. I think it's um, a lot of people, when we think about the sort of political connotation with commons associated with that somehow it does not play well with mar- with the market. But on the ground, the reality is very different. If you look at these traditional um, sort of movements uh, in the 60s and 70s, where a bunch of these commons-based organizations sprung up, you'll see uh, cooperatives in India, in Indonesia, that are hugely successful even to today. Some of them are the largest labor cooperatives in the world, for instance, or dairy cooperatives. Um, they, They came up because they were led by visionaries who believed in the idea of that commons being successful in the market and to be really responsive to where the market is in the idea of the market reflecting um, where the larger world is at the moment and being able to use it as a means of sense checking what if what they're doing is aligned. Um, Dr. George Kurian is known as the father of cooperativism in India and he's one of those traditional figures um, who helped create several such cooperatives um, who who especially emphasize this. And uh, throughout his life, he was known for especially asking grassroots workers who believe in the power of collectivism to also look, be pragmatic and look at what the collective means in the market, how competitive they are, And how can they be really, really, really responsive? Something he believed in as a competitive advantage in terms of commons compared to sort of like a traditional enterprise is the fact that you need not have just one point of contact with the market. In a traditional enterprise, which is not a commons, but maybe more capitalistic, you might might have the person who's responsible for interfacing with the market uh, sense checking and keeping track of where the market is at the moment. And something that is in the ethos of commons and especially where people like Korean emphasized is in a cooperative because everyone co-owns and co-governs the system, they are also in some ways responsible for sense checking with the market, how the overall system can be more aligned. And in this case, um, if we have a bunch of folks that are point people and connected to the ledger, I would see if we had the ledger as a commons that everybody has shares a piece of the pie and the responsibility in sense checking uh, 
with the market on what really is is aligned with having ethical carbon markets, ethical eco credits, and can still be successful and is um, is what the world needs at the same moment. That responsibility becomes shared, and I think that's the primary sort of difference. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So what's the right balance between shared responsibility and clear accountability? That makes sense. I guess what what I'm going for is that there's that old adage that it's like, if it's everybody's, it's nobody's. And like caveat, I think this is really culturally, um, it's, I think this is vastly different in different cultural contexts. So, and you, and I know you can sort of actually source from a couple of different cultural contexts, both from, you know, where you've come from and also having interacted, you know, through school and your re- other relationships at work to sort of understand that. But I'm, I'm, I'm always really curious about this and it feels sort of fundamental to this sort of um, question about embedding markets into commons. There's this cultural set of norms related to, you know, I guess you might say private property or or community management of common resources. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm just curious to hear you your thoughts on that more sort of like pointed. That's a great question. And you're right that it that the the successful solution to that from from what I've seen and experienced is really dependent on the culture and really because it's going to be something that needs to work for all the individuals in that context. Uh, for that reason, it's dependent on the cultures that each of them has grown up in and that they're used to. Um, I can speak to maybe two ends of the spectrum here. And I feel both of these are perfectly viable solutions because it works for the people within them. One of them is the SEVA movement and the Federation, for instance. And there you have hundreds of thousands of women as informal economy workers. They they all co-own the ecosystem. They're all member owners. Um, And there is a nonprofit that's in the middle of it all stewarding it, which is the SEVA Cooperative Federation. So um, the nonprofit explicitly sort of tries to function as a cooperative incubator of sorts. Uh, to help bootstart that initial system of of community, community-based decision-making, governance practices, and all of that, as well as uh, making them successful in the market on whatever enterprise that they want to boot up um, so, so they can sustain. Uh, so there is, there is some firm hand-holding in the beginning. And at the same time, there are, it's almost by decades of practice, there is a sensitivity to making sure that the decisions come from the women on the fields in the ground. Um, so in, in, in this sense, I mean, a lot of the responsibility and accountability lies with that, that federation, which sees itself as you know, servant leader of sorts um, in service to the rest of the member owners. Um, And the incentives are aligned because all of these cooperatives own um, the the federation. So it's bread and butter comes from making sure that these are represent the community. Um, 
on uh, while that's one example on the other end for instance is you'll see um something that's more familiar in the western cultures like you'll see um communities like we share or inspire and you'll see modern dolls um where where it's sort of less less obvious how you have that uh system of of bootstrapping perhaps but it still happens in some way there's a community manager somewhere sometimes that's distributed and it's a guild or this there are some folks who try and manage the operations of the system um the and and i feel like both of these systems have their merits but it's really um i i think it's really important that the information asymmetry is considered um there was there's a recent blog post by charles eisenstein i don't know if you read it where he looks at um society as an organism uh, which is very aligned with the idea of commons and uh, so so it doesn't so contrary to decentralization it doesn't mean that everybody has the same amount of power and makes decisions in the same way but like in an organized organism where you have different systems like the digestive system responsible for a certain thing and extraction extraction system is that is what we call it excretory system the respiratory system everything else um so each one of them specializes in something and has more knowledge and information of that and hence more power there um and you still need sort of a brain put them all together and you need a heart to think of the ethical um side of things um, maybe and and i think that's that's true uh in in general in spaces that we think as commons you need that common sense of uh purpose and the vision which would be reflected in ostrom's principles and that needs to be aligned with the market uh where the commons relates to the market mechanisms and you need some some operational effort uh even if it's decentralized but which everybody agrees on who would be the equivalent of the brain for instance to make sure that it's smoothly running um that you have you have a boundary and you know where the commons begins where it ends and you have specialized um sort of groups who have maybe more information or expertise in um different things you may have folks who are more tuned to what lands toward practices are in certain regions which may be bioregional you may have guilds that are more specialized in terms of uh, creating incentive mechanisms and uh, dev- software development practices so i uh, so i feel like um each one of them needs to be connected to the market with their perspective but you have the brain and the heart sort of bringing them all together um for it to be a cohesive commons and you can adapt that based on the culture on exactly how much autonomy and interdependence they have on each other yeah lovely there's a whole sort of line of thinking there that that i sort of i i don't i mean i think maybe we should zoom back out to pattern level and jump back into a, another part of this this pool but the the rest of that line of inquiry i think kind of leads going deeper and deeper in this line of questioning around you know to what degree 
does an interdependent network of specialists like what what are the safety mechanisms of generalization you know at, at what point do you really as a network actor try to be able to wear multiple hats in order to create resilience and reinforce trust because one of the things that can happen as societies or as companies or as networks or as organisms become ever more specialized through this sort of like forcing function of evolution and efficiency and all these things is that then the, the specialized the, the specialized nodes start to you know sort of like get disconnected in a way because they're just sort of doing their thing and the larger network can then start to sort of erode and so there's always I, I always have this question about you know, to what degree do we try to create feedback loops that are maintaining capabilities of generalism you know and 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 at what points and when do we think about those things or when do we just sort of let it go and that's maybe i don't know if that's abstract for our listeners or or concrete but you know, so I, I guess I'm suggesting I think that's a very important line of inquiry for us to all be holding as a network, right? To what degree do we really go all in on the on the the specialization track, and to what degree do we intentionally slow down efficiency and intentionally not optimize for specific things in order to generalize be, due to sort of like the the resilience benefits that having a more generalized approach as a suborganism of something bigger might have. Anyway, I I, I sort of want to circle back to really regrounding this conversation in the work that Region Foundation is doing right now with the endowment program and the you know the the exciting things that are happening and the challenging things that are happening as as you're leading the foundation in evolving an approach for including and engaging network stakeholders in the governance and um, evolution of this network, but specifically network stakeholders that otherwise would be normally excluded or I mean, that's not exactly the right lens, but it's sort of like network stakeholders who are essential for the functioning at this stage that are, you know, probably have by and large are not able to or interested in speculative engagement with network growth, but instead have other really concrete needs from day to day and, and how they're working. So that's the you know, region region community staking endowment program focused on land stewards and scientists, indigenous peoples, um, innovative developers who are really, in a lot of ways, the heart of the innovation and the, the evolution of the network. So, you know, I'd love to, uh, I sort of like love to weave that in in a concrete way and just say, you know, how's that going? What are the big learnings or aha moments that have emerged for you over the last I guess year or so that you've been really digging into this pretty massive uh, bit of work, right? Yeah, thanks, thanks for regarding that. Um, I can link that to to our broader topic of commons a little bit later. Um, but 
For those of you who are not aware of it, endowment program is, is the vision of region network where 30% of the tokens at Genesis were set aside to include in stakeholders who are underrepresented, who we feel are necessary for stewarding and governing the ecosystem. Um, and and uh, the foundation stewards this program and we have we have a few communities endowed at the moment and uh, a few more that are being endowed and, and a lot, lot more that we are thinking about a lot. And, and let me focus on that part that we're thinking about here. Um, and that's this is exactly the conflict and a lot of sort of growth in our own learning that we've had and that I think I have personally had my personal vision through this is to help make the ledger a voice for planetary well-being and to bring in all the stakeholders that are needed to make that voice possible. As Gregory, you were saying, this means um, scientists, it means land stewards who are engaged in regenerative activities or maybe need to be engaged as we have more eco-credit classes on the ledger. Um, it includes innovative developers who care about making sure that these are represented on the ledger. One of many insights is that this also includes the people who bring them all together. To, to your point, this, there's a huge risk that people become too specialized and work in silos. And, and that's what we see generally in the world at large, especially when, when we look at um, the climate action and the climate ecosystem and breaking the silos is is necessary for us to be successful in planetary regeneration you have to have developers working with the land steward communities on the ground and scientists being involved in what what are the regenerative activities and you know supporting them all and so the people who make this happen we often i feel don't give them enough credit the people who can be community organizers, the facilitators, the conveners, the project developers who bring them all together and can think in all of their shoes. So I find that they are also an essential part of this ecosystem and we want to bring them along. The second part of it, uh, I think the learning is an essential part of breaking these silos is, is really language for lack of a better word. And I think language signifies so much more. It signifies culture. It signifies our lens with which we look at the world. And every, every person's lens is different. And different groups of stakeholders with very different cultural contexts have different languages, different perspectives of the world. And the need to bring them all together um, on a common, to have a voice on the table um, a chair at the table and have a and voices that can be heard by everybody else. You need to have a common table, a common set of language um, that's understood by everybody. So um, this is also something that sort of gradually um, we want to enable the community to sort of develop where a scientist really understands what the land steward is doing easily. Uh, a land steward in Ecuador still understands what a climate scientist in California is referring to, but maybe it's in their own language and their own cultural context in stories that they understand um, and which is culturally relevant to them. 
And, and the third lesson is uh, an insight to really call out here is, is just that this is governance is, is a balancing act, this question of autonomy versus interdependence, this question of efficiency versus sort of deliberative decision making. And, and these also reflect in technology and software patterns. And it's, it's almost a spectrum that you need to constantly sort of iterate and evolve and see where you want to lie and what, what really is beneficial for that system and community at the moment. And that in itself is a critical part of governance to be able to move that scale and that needle across these parameters. Um, and part of at least uh, my personal goal here and part of what the team will be doing is identifying patterns and anti-patterns that help us be this agile system to be able to move the scale and sort of so to find that middle path in the balancing act through these different parameters and self-growth, evolve, that kind of thing. Are there specific network governance conversations or proposals or needs that, you know, right now you're really paying attention to? And I know that there's sort of like two hats that the foundation must play. And one of them is facilitating people growing their capability to have their own opinions <laughs> and sort of like an apolitical network facilitator. And then at the same time, the foundation has its own stake and policy and, you know, needs around the relay, around the network. So to call that out, in this case, I'm sort of shifting gears and asking, is there anything on your mind around network governance that feels really important that you're paying attention to right now at, at the foundation that, yeah, that you'd like to point out or talk about? Sure. Um, two things really come to mind. I think one being in the state that that network is at the moment, it is it is very much a Web3 ecosystem. So the goal of endowment in terms of bringing in um, stakeholders who are uh, non-Web3 natives needs to be seeded. And in the spirit of building in the open, I find that because the ecosystem right now does not have the stakeholders, those voices are not actually present to be able to, for us to be saying, here are community-initiated decisions that we want to be doing about endowment. So something that we are actively looking at is, is bridging that gap to have in, and we're still looking at the approaches, at different approaches that might make sense here um, and doing that as a team. And we'll probably open that up to the, have that be more of a, an open conversation too. Um, do we have a trusted council of advisors who can represent land stewards, for instance? Um, the foundation itself has its set of trustees who is the region consortium. Will they be, playing some of this role. Um, these are all active questions that we're kind of exploring. Um, but also, I think what's exciting is thinking about um, the incentive alignment structure and that goes along with these and how that will evolve as more and more of these uh, offline network members have their voice represented on the network. Um, the second thing that I think is exciting and very, very region network specific is 
um, the role of how endowment connects to the registry. Now, the registry, I think, is, is really cool. It's innovative in that um, we're breaking a lot of barriers with existing systems like Vera that require a lot more rigor, have a lot more uh, bureaucracy around it uh, with something that's more with, that's more community focused and where you know anybody can sort of create an eco-credit class, but still we want to ensure um, uh, that it works well with and is uh, aligned with where the market is and what is needed by the planet at the same time. So I think that is a very active question of governance in terms of how the registry can influence the ledger and how the ledger can support planetary regeneration, which I think the endowment should support. And, and that also, I think, is, is a very active conversation. And the registry teams uh, has been really active at work developing the registry program guide in terms of how new methodologies are created. And um, this will also be something that we'll look to develop and flesh out in how we can tie these programs more uh, in the future in terms of land stewards and all these underrepresented stakeholders also helping the registry evolve um, to achieve its fullest potential. Was there anything on your mind or that really stands out to you in terms of the region network ecosystem at the moment in terms of uh, governance and comments or so on that that you would like to sort of bring up or talk about yeah well i'm i'm in in this stuff i'm super just in the my head is just in very practical in in very a set of very practical questions you, you, which are are already forum conversations or i think will shortly become forum conversations such as what sort of stable coins are we going to bring on to the allow list to enable purchasing and what are the implications of that such as are there changes to our token economics or sort of like token minting rate in order to support functions besides network security that are important for network health in this phase such as oh there was one more that was that was right there you know the the upcoming conversation about region ledger 4.0 and the functionality around that ah and the signaling the potential to have a signaling proposal around sort of enforcing a a minimum amount of time in a discussion forum before it gets on chain and just having like, and obviously that's sort of a, it's a, so it's using the blockchain to signal a social agreement that people are making with one another and having a precedent. So it's not a sort of like, there's not a deterministic mechanism to enforce that, but it's sort of saying like, Hey, we're voting on this thing. We're going to record the record of that vote. And then we're going to kind of like hold each other accountable. In that case, the proposal is something like, you know, and, and there's conversation between is it one week or two, but having a one or two week long window on Commonwealth because you can see when things are posted there. Um, and if something were to go on chain before that two weeks is up, say, then validators, if everybody signaled this and everybody was in agreement or the majority of people were in agreement, then validators would then just vote no with veto on the proposal, even if they agreed with it. Just as sort of like a no, 
take it back to committee, you haven't completed the, the requisite time for the community to actually be able to look at this and have a discourse about it before it's forced on chain, right? And then there's like a limited time window and people are scrambling and may not understand things. So those are the types of just like very practical sort of like crypto legislation <laughs> that I'm thinking of. And I'm, you know, and, and so I was curious if that, you know, both about I guess about those, you know, and how you're thinking and holding that, or if there's other pieces like that, which is just like, oh, we really need a signaling. And there's also some stuff that's going to start coming up around the registry, like exercising the use of the blockchain, bring the community into a process to vote on the registry program and upgrades to approved methodologies, which there's a lot of back and forth and conversation and I think generally people have said, oh, this is the type of thing that needs like a special, a, a transparent specialist council that's voting on registry topics. And I've actually, I, I, although I agree with that, I've been pushing back and saying, no, right now we have this mechanism and this is like an all token voter mechanism. And in the same way that not everybody actually has a, an in-depth knowledge of token mechanism design and token economics, and yet we're asking them to vote on it, and we're asking them to consider it, and we're asking them to put their trust in, in validators if they can't take the time to research it, to delegate their vote to validators who can, we actually need to do the same thing with this, with the approach to science, because that's what's different is that we have, this is a transparent community governed system for registering claims and, uh, you know, and data and minting assets. So anyway, I've been sort of like saying like, no, actually we have to use this, even though it feels a little clunky, that's what will evolve it. And that's what will grow our muscles and grow engagement as well as making it clear to outside stakeholders, what the ledger's even for, right? The, because uh, yes, the ledger provides this full stack integration for ecological claims to turn into ecological assets to be able to bring them to market, right? And there's like, you know, we're, we're shipping marketplace and a DEX at some point and all these other things. But really, the value of region ledger is a, you know, local and global consensus system for how do we make these claims? Why are they valuable? And how do we root the proof of regeneration that's being claimed in the right context, governed by the right people, <laughs> not enforcing totalizing standards. So um, that's a lot. I mean, that's you asked me what was on my mind. Those are sort of the things that are on my mind when I'm thinking about network governance specifically at the moment. That that makes sense. I mean, I think two things really stand out here, right? One is um network network security and network health and making sure that's sort of part of network governance and second one is uh the uh, scientific rigor or and uh, in some ways community initiated scientific decisions and representing that on on the ledger right um and i mean i i honestly think we should we should have this um be maybe more of a community conversation, um, crowdsource a few approaches, go with one and then have the ability to evolve. Because um, I don't think, I don't think we'll have an immediately optimal option in, in either of these cases. Um, the one, especially in terms of uh, registry governance you know, on, on chain, um, 
is is something that has been very alive in my mind. It, and and I'm going to go back to sort of traditional organizations and and how how governance happens here, because um, there as well asymmetry of information is is really really important to consider um, in uh, in you know in in traditional indigenous communities and in a lot of them you'll find elder councils that people depend on. Either they make the decision or their decision is have is has a uh, heavy weight in terms of consultation and the soft power that influences the community's decision. In in a lot of cooperatives, too, you'll have like this representative democracy where you have uh, that's built of community leaders that everybody looks up to. Uh, who it's it's that big sister in the village that everybody loves uh, and uh, sort of trusts. Who maybe also has more of a of an understanding of what's happening in the world outside the village and people depend on them for their advice and decision-making here uh, and they represent the village outside. And I don't think the lecture necessarily has to reflect a lot of these traditional forms of, of decision-making. And I think um, <clears throat> it would be a missed opportunity if we don't uh, incorporate some of these existing cultural practices into what can happen on the ledger, right? So uh, the power of the ledger is in using it for these public conversations and reflecting the planetary health. So if we um, if we don't at least talk about in signaling proposals, like what the criteria for endowment is, the different things we are looking at, um, what are we thinking about in terms of registry program guide, um, it's it's a missed opportunity. And at the same time, um, while the community builds up to where um, everybody, at least to a huge extent, there is that um, information uh, and the sort of scientific expertise to be able to make network-wide decisions on uh, registry programs and methodologies and so on, um, maybe we do have a consulting council who, um, whatever name we want to call them, uh, are people that we bring on to the network who can really give their inputs on it um, is, is, for instance, one approach. But I mean, I think we should just think about and try a few approaches and have this, have this conversation. Um, I, I don't think it has to be and either are, it's probably a lot, sort of like a yes and, you know what I mean? Well, and we're just getting to the point with, uh, uh, boy, I believe, knock on wood, that the groups module is is part of the region ledger 4.0 upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been one of the challenges of the region engineering team being the lead maintainer of the Cosmos SDK for the whole Cosmos ecosystem, as well as the core development team for regions community has been this back and forth around trying to build the software in a way that is, it is going to be deeply useful for a much bigger ecosystem than region. And so that sometimes slows our own go to market. The positive side of that is that it means that anything that ships on region ledger has been battle hardened and tested and is you know, like amazing. The, the downside is we don't just like, oh, we could just bang this out and put it on chain, <laughs> you know, and like get it get it moving. So um 
Okay, that all said, sorry for the uh, long disclaimer there. On the tech side, once groups, groups modules live on Region Ledger, I guess I'm really firmly of the opinion that we need to start using, like start flexing the unicameral token governance for everything. I mean, we need to be doing this right now, like everything. Anytime there's an important decision that's being made by the foundation or R&D, even if, as you're mentioning, like a lot of these things are not necessarily like the whole community needs ne- like needs to if you were thinking of like a strict um you know it's more just like let's build let's exercise the muscle of people of of discourse of public discourse about important things that are happening and and then let's use this amazing tech the groups module to then sort of like be creating that council that is that the community then says, yes, we're like, we went through a process. We all thought about some of these themes. Now we're going to empower, transparently empower this council. That power could be revoked. You know, we have the auth, this nice, nice combination between auth Z and groups module in which we really can build these like transparent, flexible representative assemblies, essentially, you know, and I personally, I would love to see an economic sort of engineering or or the decentral bank assembly or council and i'd like to see sort of a science and registry assembly and i'd like to see an assembly around administering the community funds and like how those can be more efficiently leveraged and used you know and maybe like a meta governance assembly that's thinking about you know, the, the, the health, like holistically about the health and in reporting back to people and things like that. But in the meantime, I think we really need to be, you know, anything that would be running through those, we should just be really sprinting on, let's get forum posts about stuff that we're, that's on our mind. Let's have discord and Twitter conversations. Let's get stuff up on chain and let's vote and engage so that, so that there is this vibrant, clear, uh, record of our thinking as we're iterating and setting precedents and understanding what needs to be happening and where where there are disagreements perhaps or or where there's really clear consensus in different ways um yeah so we were just having a very energized conversation at R&D Inc uh, with the science and registry team we're just about to upgrade the carbon plus grasslands methodology to version 1.0 and there's, there's, you know, this is very exciting. There's been external sort of peer review processes and an upgrade of this methodology that we used to, to, to mint these initial carbon credits and sell them to Microsoft. But we always knew and positioned that as a pilot that, you know, we were like, it was innovation. It was an innovative pilot. And now we've spent the last like year and a half, like, questioning assumptions, hardening the science, hardening the methodology, evolving the sampling, you know, routine, the statistical methods, the satellite analysis, the, the, just like, you know, really putting energy into this becoming something that isn't just a pilot, but that could be scaled. And I was saying to the team, like, hey, great, write all of this up, put it in the forum, and let's include the community in in answering the question, do we as a community think that we that it's right to call like to to call this version 1.0 and that this is like a quantum leap? 
And, and, you know, and there, and some of the science team were like, yeah, but they're not scientists. And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't matter. This is an opportunity to educate ourselves. And at the end of the day, people are going to choose to defer to the people that they trust mostly with this kind of complex information. But this is a way to make it clear and transparent and on chain. What was decided? Why was it decided? Who had what opinion? What, you know, like, let's get that all out so that it isn't, you know, in a bureaucratic backroom somewhere, but it's actually on chain, <laughs> you know, durably presented. Um, and um, that's just such a powerful thing at this stage for learning, right? I just get really excited because that enables us all to learn. It, it makes something that's implicit, explicit. It makes something that's illegible, legible. And that enables all of us to learn together and then, yes, I mean, I sort of fully think it will evolve quite quickly to the Science and Registry Council that's sort of like going through these processes still transparently and on chain, but that sort of like has people who are tasked to, to like do that work and, and representative stakeholders that engage with that. But anyway, I, I you know, th that felt very energizing. And I think there was also a click in the R&D Inc. team, which is, does an amazing job at like being community oriented and doing open silence and building in public, but this like click of like, Oh, the next stage now isn't just to sort of like publish it and have an open GitHub repo and have these other things. It's actually to sort of like compile it and engage in a, in an educational governance process in which people are informing, you know, and, and being opinionated and engaging and, letting folks know that that's what we're doing here. You know, this is a novel and interesting use of a proof of stake blockchain. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think the vision's pretty compelling here um, that, you know, you're down the line or so you, you have, um, I, I don't know, <clears throat> version 2.0 and, um, and what that version includes and what it means. Um, a campesino in Ecuador has has an engaging, I don't know, like a sock puppet video or a storyboarding video that that explains what it is, and they can, um, and the community member there can give their inputs, which is reflected on the Commonwealth Forum, right? And and their inputs is something that a cooperative leader uh, in Indonesia can look at and understand uh, and say. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I agree with that too. I think this is something that might ap apply for us uh, and is relevant to our local context, something like that. Uh, and, and I feel like like that's the vision we want to move towards, where we have these methodologies that applicable in more than one context, and hence the discussion is happening on chain, um, and and the discussion is in public where others can learn as well. And and there's a there's a case to be made for that, and we we definitely have pieces of the roadmap in place. I feel, and with the groups module coming up, and with the registry program guide up, and so on and so forth. Um, where where my mind is going with this is that an essential component of this, um, which uh, which we're in the process of building, but have not built yet fully. I think successfully is is translating like the language of scientific rigor into 
into something that, you know, communities can understand, like the language of, of storytelling and the narratives around it. And, and to help make that an integral part of the governance process. Now, it may or may not be part of the actual forum post, uh, but, but, you know, um, where, where the discussion is, happens in public and is, is as engaging as a really controversial, I don't know, Instagram post on whether it's a blue or a black dress, um, where all you need is that image and that's sort of self-explanatory and people have their, have their opinions on it, you know? Um, so I, I feel like, like that's the level where we need to go. Um, and, and we have to build this mechanisms in, in terms of the cultural translation there. Um, and it is good to flex those muscles so we know what it really takes to do that because we haven't done that, I don't think successfully in the Web3 world so far, let alone in terms of uh, the climate science world. So it will take a lot of iteration and, and building and I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm really excited about the opportunities for this to be flexible and iterative and self self-governing. Yeah, I think it's 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 really compelling and exciting. Well, so so now I kind of want to circle back for a little while there as you were describing, as you were speaking to my question that I could broadly encapsulate as the last mile challenge. You were talking about digital intermediaries, essentially, or digital fiduciaries or something like this. Um, you didn't use those words, but I've heard those words used in open team, for instance, uh, and uh, um, sidebar, are you familiar with the ag stack people? Great. Um, I know Rick and it is thinking a lot about this and they, they particularly have been focused on these sort of like, um, I don't remember what they're calling it, but data stewards or, you know, sort of like these digital intermediaries who have kind of like a code of conduct, even contractual obligations about how they're interfacing as an intermediary in the system. You know, I'm curious about the, I think there's a risk of recapitulating existing social structures in which intermediaries kind of become the the source of value extraction in a system. And yet, as you were mentioning, you know, the crypto space classically undervalues intermediaries, the community builders, the facilitators, the people who are bringing us all together and engaging and convening. And of course, in this case, digital intermediaries, people who can provide, who can interface with a council of elders and articulate their desires it, it translated into a digital format and and you know that's important societal signaling right to help us improve how we're thinking about everything so how are we thinking about that the the hazards involved with digital intermediaries the opportunities and needs for digital intermediaries and you know, and, and what does the community, like, how is our strategy for in community staking endowment relate to that balance between hazards and opportunities for that specific class of humans who are these amazing, you know, connect the connective tissue between different groups who otherwise wouldn't be able to, to connect? That's, that's a poignant question. Um, and we've had 
very very dynamic conversations about it uh, internally too. Uh, one of one of which being, hey, if we if we need to have an intermediary in a community that, for instance, may not have a lot of digital or even internet access otherwise, then we need to have sort of regular stipends for them in order for them to be involved and and have actual, whether as token or fiat um, compensation for for the time. I mean, it, it is it is work. It is emotional labor to be in that position, right? Um, and I do think there is some level of compensation that's required in order for them to be able to represent others' desires. Uh, something that comes naturally to us is where we are able to represent ourselves in some way, uh, but it takes a different skill set to be able to be more in service to community and others than yourself in some way. And that's what these folks are asked to do because they're representing the elder council or the community and, and so on. So I think there um, there is definitely are that if you look at traditional uh, supply chains where you have the intermediary making a lot of money and not a lot of it trickling back down to the, to the individual land steward, um, and also socially, the intermediary having their own voice, but not really representing the community at large. Um, if there is sort of a disagreement between the two and if they're not aligned. And both of these are, are very real risks. And I personally think it's it, it, it boils down to sort of that very... Um, community organizing skill set of knowing or appointing who that intermediary is and to some level sort of capacity building. I don't think all of these skills are present in any individual from the outset. And part of part of the goal here is to identify in terms of endowment, like that minimal capacity that's needed both for the organization to be able to identify such folks and nominate them, as well as what the folks need to have. Um, and also recognizing that there is additional capacity uh, and skills that probably need to be learned, uh, which is which which is entirely left to the organization and the people themselves, but with the foundation in this case needs to at least offer and support if they would be interested in. And at least for the endowment program, as we are stewarding them to make sure that even as we have this person, we still have other points of contact in the organization and other ways of validating and making sure that um, the intermediary is sort of representing the will of the community and to have those regular touch points to, to make that happen. I. I, I mean, I do think it's not today, but that there is a point down the road where um, the role of the intermediary reduces in power as we have more of the functionality like groups module that people can adopt. And there's uh, more uh, sort of embedded in the social fabric and the routines of engaging in these governance by the community. They'll have... Great, there'll be greater awareness in terms of how their voice matters and and whether it's being represented in the right way. And, and the role of the intermediary is going to 
reduced to become more of a facilitator or even a community manager digitally, like how you have somebody that may be a forum manager. So I do think, and 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 I think that's sort of the trajectory that we want to sort of see it go and facilitate making that trajectory happen via both capacity building for the intermediaries, for the organization, uh, and building the tools and systems to make that happen. Yeah. Where are there examples of successful voluntary disintermediation in which intermediaries transform their position? And specifically, I'm thinking about how hard it is, like in sort of, and this is more institutional level. And I think in this case, it's a lot of individuals that we're dealing with, maybe organizations as well, but it'll be heterogeneous. There'll be individuals and organizations and, and likely almost none of them will be very big, which is maybe another positive, but as value accrues to intermediaries, like incumbent credit registry systems, for instance, they become entrenched. They become unwilling to to sort of like disaggregate themselves and decompose and fuel the next thing. It's like it's like I don't want to die, <laughs> you know, organizationally speaking. Um, and maybe there's also ego death related to people feeling useful or whatever it is. Um, maybe it's multiple layers, Psych- psychological, you know, sociological, economic attachment to specific roles in a community or a network that we already know are going to f- go through a phase change, right? Because of both because of the evolution of the technology, the usability of that, you know, yeah, so I'm just curious, do you have it, it, pictures in mind of successful voluntary disintermediation or or is this something that we need to create the first example of somehow? Um, well, in term, even in terms of digital terms, the, the community that I work with, because I work so closely with them, these women's communities, they are the first example that come to mind. Um, they have some very pioneering digital initiatives for, for, com- for communities that are based in rural India. And these are, um, some of them are structured as platform cooperatives. One of them is specifically looking at um, in the context of agriculture and climate adapted and focusing on climate adaptation to the role of intermediaries and uh, and there is a, a potential research project there looking at what is called a community entrepreneur so to speak um, and so so there um, these intermediaries are actually legally and organizationally um, members that are in service to the cooperative. So they answer to the cooperative and they have a contractual obligation to to make sure that they fulfill the needs of the people and the cooperative and represent like a, a bunch of KPIs that's directly related to making sure that the value accretes to the cooperative and not the individuals, right? And in and the part about this that's also cool, especially as uh, one of the indigenous women communities uh, wants is implementing it and building is that 
these intermediaries are linked to fidgetal spaces. Like they actually uh, manage physical warehousing and, you know, um, supply chain logistics and so on, while also being the digital point of contact for that part of the community for uh, ag tech services and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a very feasible way of going about it. If there are existing social structures that are more community owned that this person would answer to. And these are um, articulated and written down and periodically evaluated. Yeah, great. Well, when we, before we started recording, when we were just catching up, I was sharing my, <laughs> I was sharing some of my anxiety, angst, disillusionment, <laughs> anger, <laughs> uncomfortable, different, a, a suite of uncomfortable feelings that I exp- I am experiencing today, which is we're recording this on Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. It's unlikely. I mean, I think we'll probably uh, publish this podcast in a while because we've got a little bit of a backlog. So it'll come out in a little bit. So, you know, it's uh, evergreen content here. <laughs> but, you know, for context, for listeners, we're, we're talking on Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. <laughs> and um, which means in addition to the normal, insane amplification of the of the refi meme and the regeneration meme and the region to degen or degen to region memes and you know um, all of this stuff. It's like becoming so busy and there's new evangelists and self-proclaimed leaders and thought leaders and projects popping up every second like weeds. It's it truly is the refi spring right now in which you know everybody is got new startups, web three startups for this and that. And as I mentioned, I actually have quite a negative emotional response in the midst of all of this. And it's a little bit, um, it's not just that. I also have inspiration and excitement and uh, positive emotions, but it's ambivalent. It's like, it's some of the negative, it's some of the positive. It's quite confusing. Um, Why do I have that experience? I think it's, you know, I see a lot of people talking a lot and maybe not walking the talk. I see a lot of people who I would perceive as quite naive, maybe making mistakes that I wish they wouldn't make. I see a lot of people that I perceive as sort of like uh, sucking energy directly out of this long term (laughs) built in public, thoughtful, slow approach that we've been taking at Regen to really try to build the right infrastructure and the right community and the right approach in a very slow way. And I see how that gets sort of just like people just sort of like take the shiny bits. They take the the language or they take the different elements of it and they just sort of like run off with it and then they repurpose it. And it's impossible if you don't know better, it's impossible to discern between this sort of like, you know, authentic, slow, you know, it's like Regent Network's kind of like an iceberg. There's people all over the world doing all this work, but they're not just like out on Twitter and and like active on Discord, they're doing science or they're t- they're doing community work. And there's like this longer, slower process. Yeah, I just feel sort of sad or disheartened or something. And then I have to check, like, you know, what is that? Is that an ego thing or is that a 
am I misreading the situation? Is this all, all a sign of success, really, that, that what we that actually in some way we've seeded this whole movement and maybe now we could just like, you know, walk away? <laughs> Be like, great, everybody, like it's done, you know, independent of our success or not success in the movement. Anyway, I, you know, we were just chatting about that. It feels like a good topic to talk about because it's certainly very up for me <laughs> as I scroll through Twitter. And I, I try to refrain from being a cantankerous, you know, a cantankerous and curmudgeonly old man yelling at the kids to get off my lawn, but sometimes I can't. <laughs> and I'd love to just like, what's your take on all of this? And, and what feelings do you have in seeing all of this excitement and ferment and foaminess? <laughs> <laughs> around around refi and regeneration and crypto web web three region stuff <laughs> happy oats day um i can also be very much the cantankerous old lady um so so with that disclaimer i mean i i honestly think it's exciting to have lots of energy this is definitely a, a sign of success and it's also the sign of a need for the second phase speaks to the need for the people who are not at the tip of the iceberg to have louder Twitter voices. It speaks to the need for for us to make our ethics more known um, for so so people who want to take a little bit more of a measured approach know that hey here is here is a precedent to follow. I mean I do believe that as much as a lot of it is motivated by the market, that there are people who are well-intentioned but just don't know of enough examples around uh, of different ways to do things and maybe going after the thing that's glittery. And and we just have to set those examples and uh, make those more of the crypto refi standards that people can choose to follow if they would like to uh, it's it's sort of like like back in the day in in the agricultural industry like how uh, when regenerative practices came about and so on you you can't really force people to adopt them but if there are companies that really take um, ethical sourcing seriously or so on you have they choose to adopt standards and they choose to make it known and that uh, and they recognize that it has power in the market, that it is a competitive advantage. And I, I also believe that with a lot of these projects mushrooming up, there'll also be this crop of investors who are looking for the right projects and the right values and so on to support. And there is an opportunity here to for each project to sort of self-align themselves with values and we we have a responsibility there to sort of make that known um, and uh, build in public even more and and i'd love to jam with you on it i think um this is uh, we're making the endowment um instead of criteria we're calling it prioritization and austin's especially one of our team members is stewarding the process of kind of um thinking in public about it and uh, in my mind, like that's the first step for us to actually put down all the ethical values that already exist in the network so far, but we haven't articulated and also sort of circulated around in case it's helpful to other refi projects and to those 
who want to share what they have been working on too and really build an alliance around it. Yeah. So it's sort of like double down and keep going. <laughs> build in public, you know, just keep keep going. Yeah. You know, one of the things that strikes me is just, you know, honestly and transparently, I think one of the challenges we face at this moment is that we've felt we have at Region Network, we felt as though there needs to be r- radical stakeholder governance of the the very foundations of the network, the layer one. And that has led us into a deeper process around technological innovation than projects who assume that sort of like in quotes, a sufficiently decentralized and trustless layer one is sufficient for achieving refi, right? And we've always said, no, it's not. You know, you actually have to bake in inclusion of the network stakeholders into the layer one itself and make it possible for the network to actually, for that to to scale, for that mechanism to scale with the network, right? So that you don't get this like pyramid in which, essentially like early Bitcoin miners and Ethereum miners are earning all of the value from in quotes refi from like tokenizing carbon and other things. Anyway, this is, this is like a radical, this is what's really radical about region in a way is that we've started there and we, we haven't really wavered off of that, but it technologically makes it really hard. And also network effect makes it very hard because you sort of like have maybe different incentives than a lot of the big crypto money does. Um, you know, I'm just curious, uh, you know, I, I, this is kind of a silly question, but did we make the right decision th- with that? Like the trade-off, is that the right trade-off to have made? You know, as we see what we're doing inspire and be copied onto the places where it's easier to deploy because it has less sort of less of the hard social work required to build an organic ownership of the network combined with, you know, the tech innovation that must take place to get that last mile. So we have just have, we have a much higher friction process to go through because we feel like it's right. Is that, you know, did we mess up or is this like, did we make the right move? And is this, you know, sort of like conviction worth sticking to? And, you know, if it's the right move, how aggressive are we about sort of like differentiating ourselves based on that fact? And this is like, I'm kind of, I'm asking you as a peer really, because this is a, this is like a constant question and it's at the root of my unease instead of excitement around the space, I guess. <laughs> appreciate, appreciate the deep thought and the candor there, um, Gregory. Uh, and here again, I'm, I'm replying as a peer, um, because I'm sure there are various perspectives here in in the network and the ecosystem on it. I I, I want to channel and go back to uh, one of the initial pieces I talked about in terms of how the comments relates to the market here. That one of the guiding point has to be that being a commons needs to be a competitive advantage. That you have that you are still connected to the market and the social fabric is is built so that there are more points, touch points with the market. Um, and collectively that makes the network security and network health more robust. 
And I feel like this is this is sort of where we should be looking at and focusing on a little bit more now. Um, in traditional tech ecosystems, I mean, we call it as network effect, um, but that doesn't take the social fabric into account. But here, um, if we are building a more deliberate commons that is co-owned um, by a lot of these communities, I mean, I, I think it is a trend-setting design and structure. And uh, we have to double down on the the adv- market advantage in this all where uh, where where we ha- i don't know are able to be quicker to respond to carbon needs in the communities and be able to speak louder uh, in in circles where building fast does not let you speak louder as much you know um so and I think this is something that we're still figuring out as an ecosystem and that we can be better about. But at least this is where, I mean, to me, putting our energy uh, really makes sense. Love it. Yeah, totally agree. Well, we're sort of coming up uh, towards the end of our, our podcasting time. Is there any, um, where can people follow or engage with you and Regen Foundation? And are there any are there any last bits of, um, you know, thinking or invitations you'd like to make to listeners out there? Cool. Well, thank you for the prompt. Um, I'm usually very bad about it, about wrapping it up uh, with the concept of the conversation. But we Region Foundation has has a Twitter account, Region FDN. Um, you, if you follow Region Network, we are usually very close by in the Twitter space. I am very close by to the Region Foundation Twitter handle, and I'm our Kolegala. We also have uh, have our website, region.foundation, and are active on the Region Network Discord communities. And I, I mean, something that I really want to engage the public conversation around is the ethics that we are thinking about as part of this network and how, and if that may be helpful to the larger refi space. Um, And I think this will be a continuing conversation over the next several months or so. Um, So if people have thoughts about it um, and really want to engage me personally, the Region Foundation in conversation reach, reach out on Twitter or through our website, send us an email, all of it works. If you're not a if you're not a Twitterverse person, uh, good old email uh, is also fine. Nice, yeah, awesome. And last question: What's your favorite? You know, there's sort of different ways of communicating, right? So, with different lineages. So we have sort of the endless feeds of Twitter. We have the forum style like permanent forum threaded forums of in our case commonwealth now is the regen forum that kind of natively integrates with blockchain governance and people's wallets um we have chat room like discord what's your favorite place to interact and why is this is this sort of like a like a general question is this a trick question gregory Um, no it's not a trick (laughs) question it's just uh i'm just this is like I'm curious. And also this sort of uh, 
you know, like, do you prefer to banter back and forth with people on Twitter or would you prefer to have more of a static long form forum discussion like that you put a little bit more thought in, maybe edit before posting or is like just hopping in and chatting, which is sort of like the like the middle ground is hopping in and chatting in a space that's dedicated like Discord work best or is it like you know like yes <laughs> all of the above <laughs> depending on the context um i i feel like for for some of these it's 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 all of the above and uh particularly for some of the evergreen topics which need to be unfiltered live conversations like these and twitter spaces and so on are great where you can engage a lot more people and discord communities is is also perfect there um, for for some for people who are familiar with Discord don't mind the chat interface and and this is my preference in terms of but I, I do think as an ecosystem like we have more to grow in that I know for instance a lot of people would prefer voice conversations and we don't yet have for instance being able to have voice conversations easily on, on Discord across time zones if it's not live, for instance. Um, but one day, maybe we'll make that happen. Sort of like a loom on Discord kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, then that's a nice thing about Slack these days, actually, is that they've integrated voice and video. I sometimes wonder if we shouldn't like abandon Discord and move everybody to Slack and or abandon Slack and move everybody to Discord, I sort of feel like, you know, anyway. I think it's that perennial state of discontent. <laughs> any any tool, it, you always feel like moving away from it. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, we the fewer tools, the better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, fantastic. It's been really lovely to get to chat with you uh, in my morning, starting my morning off having a great conversation with you and you know your evening there in india and yeah thanks so much and thanks so much for all the work and care and uh, thoughtfulness you're putting into uh, running the foundation thanks gregory you as well um always fun i think this is this was a perfect earth day conversation in the rest of the bleakness in the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we we didn't really uh even touch on the bigger global context which maybe is better since this is going to take a month or so to get out who knows maybe hopefully that bleakness will uh will transform <laughs> yes here here all right, all right have a have a great day and happy happy friday happy weekend gregory happy earth day take care bye